Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. It wasn't all that long ago when many developers dismissed unit testing as being idealistic at best and a huge waste of effort at worst. The attitude has softened relatively recently as more and more developers have learned the value of having a regular testing practice as part of their development. While test-driven development has been pretty popular in some communities for a while, most projects can benefit significantly from unit testing, even if it's not done in the way TDD advocates would like. There are substantial advantages to adequate testing of software, and we'll be covering these throughout the episode. We've brought on John Calloway and Clayton Hunt to answer some of our questions about unit testing and test-driven development. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I, um, you know, I had that surgery for my hernia back uh, right after Dev Space uh, last fall, and everything seemed to be better. And I am experiencing pain again, so I'm going back to the doctors and going through all that junk again. And yeah, that's uh, that's basically all I've been fighting. But it feels like it's beating the crap out of me. So I guess that's enough for a weekly report. Uh, <laughs> Man, that's that stinks. I I can only imagine. Yeah. So how about you, John? Well, I just got back from Orlando Code Camp, uh, where I gave a presentation using .NET Core on a Raspberry Pi cluster with Docker and OpenFAS. Uh, so, naturally, I got back and immediately decided that I'm going to tear it all down and reload everything before the next time I give that presentation. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, cool. That's, that sounds really, that sounds right up my alley, too. That's really cool. Um, Clayton, how about you? Uh, not a whole lot lately. Uh, I did get my eyes lasered recently, so I've been recovering from that. It's it's painful. I remember when my former mother-in-law did that. She was a big advocate for it, but yeah, that, uh, that sounds about right. So, it's really funny that we're talking about unit testing and test-driven development because tomorrow I'm actually taking a course at work on TDD. Um, I'll be in there with a lot of other developers and our QA from the team I'm on. She wants to understand the testing that developers do and how test-driven development works. Uh, honestly, I kind of respect that enthusiasm. I saw a lot of enthusiasm this past weekend. A friend of ours was in town for spring break slash St. Patrick's Day. She works at a college down in Panama City Beach. And so uh, where do people that live in PCB go for spring break? Apparently, Nashville. Uh, her flight wasn't until a little later on Sunday, but she had to check out of her hotel. So we had some time to kill between getting brunch and her flight. Driving around town, we found a group of LARPers or live action role players practicing in one of the parks around town. So, of course, we stopped, grabbed a towel from the car and sat on the grass watching the mayhem as people ran around hitting each other with foam swords. Lots of fun. Speaking of LARPing, though, I've got something kind of interesting and a unique way of using tech for IOTs.
This week for IOTs, I have a project called The Hammer of Healing and Destruction. The idea is that a, the Warhammer here is a LARP weapon that can both heal and hurt, and using the Adafruit LSM-303 sensor, the weapon will track your movement to determine what mode you've selected, heal or harm, or how much damage your hit dealt. It will track your movement and sort of what you do to determine the amount of damage and calculate that for you, telling you that with the sound. Uh, to heal, you have to place it in a certain position and hold it there to enter healing mode. While the post is just sort of a proof of concept, it's a cool idea to bring a bit of technology and IoT into the Middle Ages. So, Will, who's talking to us this week? We uh, grabbed a comment on our CQRS event sourcing episode from Adam Dimitrik. Uh, he says, here's some sample code, very easy code for understanding this. I can provide an example in any programming language you like. And what... This uh, this came about due to um, some spots that we kind of missed on that episode. And so Adam kind of went back and forth with us on Twitter and kind of talked through uh, the bits and pieces that, you know, we, that we missed in the discussion. And I think, Beej, you were in this conversation a bit more than I was. Yeah. Well, he in the comment, he also included a link to that Twitter conversation and to his GitHub repo with code showing the CQRS. Um, you can find that on the website in the comments. You can, from there, you can look at the conversation back and forth. It was, it was really great. Uh, Adam, we want to say thanks. That's so amazing. Love it when, when we get people that know the stuff we're talking about even better than us and jump on and give us some great feedback on it and, uh, good comments. Correct us when we're wrong. That's awesome. Um, I also personally really appreciate being able to see it in working code because this is a concept that, while I understood the concept or the idea around it, I was having trouble getting a a concrete way of doing it down. But send us an email with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. And guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Google+. We're also on Path, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can check us out each week on Facebook and Twitter Live, where we answer some listener questions and talk about what's going on in the tech world. Or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. It's that time of year again. Will and I are getting ready for Nashville's premier polyglot technology conference. This year, Music City Code has combined forces with Music City Agile and Music City Data. And by their powers combined, they form Music City Tech. Have you ever wondered what it's like to record a podcast? Well, sit in the audience as we host a panel at the conference that will later, through the magic of BJ's extensive editing, become an episode. Meet us and the Junior Developer Toolbox crew at our booth and get some cool CDP swag. Music City Tech is a three-day event, May 31st through June 2nd, consisting of simultaneous conferences, Music City Code, Music City Agile, and Music City Data, each focused on a particular community of technology professionals, all held at Vanderbilt University. Tickets went on sale April 1st with early bird pricing at 50%, and attendees can register at completedeveloper.musiccitytech.com. Most of us have tried to get better about unit testing with varying degrees of success. Some folks even manage to succeed. Whether it is due to inexperience, frameworks designed without consideration of testing, or simple management resistance to regular testing, the challenges to getting it right are substantial. 
However, the rewards are great, which is why we've brought John Callaway and Clayton Hunt on the show. We met John at DevSpace in uh, Huntsville, Alabama this past year. He stopped by and uh, chatted with us, which led to Slack and email conversations and ultimately this episode. A Microsoft MVP, John has been a professional developer since 1999. That was the year I graduated high school. Uh, He has focused primarily on web technologies and has experience with everything from PHP to C Sharp to ReactJS to SignalR. Clean code and professionalism are particularly important to him, as well as mentoring and teaching others what he has learned along the way. Clayton has been programming professionally since 2005, doing mostly web development with an emphasis on JavaScript and C-sharp. He has a focus on software craftsmanship and is a signatory of both the Agile Manifesto and the Software Craftsmanship Manifesto. He believes that through short iterations and the careful gathering of requirements that we can deliver the highest quality and the most value in the shortest time. He enjoys learning and encouraging others to continuously improve themselves. They are two-thirds of the trio that hosts the Six Figure Developer Podcast, uh, and they run the stpete.net meetup. John and Clayton have recently released a book, Practical Test-Driven Development Using C-Sharp 7, Unleash the Power of TDD by Implementing Real-World Examples Under .NET Environment and JavaScript. That's a mouthful, so uh, I'm just going to call out the TDD book from now on. Uh, but would you guys like to give us uh, sort of the the elevator pitch for the book or just sort of some brief information about it? Sure. Yeah. So we decided to write a book about test-driven development uh, to really be a guide to helping people get their feet wet and gain a, a better understanding of the practice altogether. Clayton and I started working together a couple of years ago uh, at, a, at a small renewed startup where he was actually the one that came in and introduced TDD to the team. So naturally, it was uh, pretty easy to to work with him and work towards crafting a, uh, a an excellent book uh, about gaining an understanding of test-driven development. That's really cool. I also noticed uh, when we were looking into the information about it that... Uh a mutual friend of ours wrote the foreword, John Sanmez. So that's really cool. He's been on the show a couple of times. So, um, but I, I have a first question that I like to ask all of our guests before we really get into the episode. And it's just sort of a, a personal thing. This podcast started out as my journey into technology and through flashbacks and other things has told Will's journey as well, but uh, we like to ask our guests, what got you guys into development or interested in it at first? Sure. Um, So, in about third grade, I was in a a Pegasus program, a a kind of a a precursor to a magnet school program where they pulled all the gifted and talented students together. And within that program, they they had a computer lab of sorts set up with uh, maybe eight or ten Apple IIe computers. And they started teaching us some rudimentary programming where we could print out our name across the screen. Then we could print it out diagonally across the screen and over and over and over again throughout the day until it was time to shut off the computers. So that was probably my first introduction to computers and rudimentary programming. And it just kind of progressed from there. Sounds very similar to to mine. I uh, started in fourth grade uh, with the those old Apple computers and stuff. So, yeah. Um, Clayton, how about you? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not sure exactly how old I was, uh, but we've, we had a computer in my house pretty much all the way back to my first memories. And 
um, of course, computers were invented so you could play games, right? So mm-hmm. I had to figure out how to play games on the computers that we had. And uh, back in the old DOS days, that often meant that you had to customize the auto-execute bat file. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And the config sys. So while a lot of people may not consider that programming, you are you are sort of, you're putting together instructions and, and getting the computer to do different things based on those instructions. So uh, that's kind of where I started. And then I found an old book in... Um, in my dad's stuff from I don't even know when, and it had several applications or well, little programs written in uh, GW Basic, and so <laughs> I I actually had a uh, Tandy two thousand computer and it had GW Basic on it, so I started writing those applications and running them and, and experimenting with them, and then uh, it wasn't long before I found QBasic and and started messing with uh, Gorilla and Nibbles and changing the different values and seeing what effect that had and and. Um, once I got to manipulating those games and, and making them do different things, the things that I wanted them to do, I was hooked. So I never stopped programming after that. I can I can kind of understand that. Uh, my my dad got our first computer by trading a shed for it. <laughs> Not to sound redneck or anything. <laughs> it's, it's a story I've yeah. heard a thousand times. <laughs> Oh man! I also uh, did a lot. You know, I did a fair bit of uh, GW Basic back in the day, so that's a good starting point. I mean, it's it's nice, simple, easy introduction, and um, that doesn't exist as as much anymore. Yeah, it really doesn't. It's it's sad how how challenging it is to get into development compared to what it used to be. Because um, you know, back in the day, I mean, crap, you just I mean, you can still like put a batch file out there and you know mess with it, and you can still do little console apps. But it's almost like the user expectations have gone so far that people uh, they they fail to see how neat it actually is to to build something. Yeah, my uh, my kids have a couple programming applications on their iPads, but they wouldn't even touch them if they couldn't get an animated uh, character in about five seconds. Whereas I would spend days trying to get a character to move at all. Yeah. So what? is unit testing and how does it differ from integration testing or automated UI testing? Uh, So unit testing is not really what a lot of people think it is. So a lot of people would say that unit testing is testing a very, very tiny piece of your application. Like you're just, uh, you're just going to test part of a method, right? But if you go back and you look at the original source for unit testing, Kent Beck, in his book, he says that a unit test is simply a test of the application that is not affected by the other tests. So it runs in isolation. So really, a unit test could go all the way through the entire system as long as the other tests that you're going to run won't affect it. Now, when when you compare that to integration testing or automated UI testing, when somebody says an integration test, what they typically mean is that it's integrating either with, like, say, the database or um, another, another, like a, like a remote API, right? You're, you're testing that you can actually use something else that's external to the code that you actually wrote. And then uh, automated UI testing is, is um, what some people would call an end-to-end test. So you'll test uh, from the perspective of the user interface all the way through the application uh, and just do that in an automated fashion instead of having a, a QA engineer do that manually. How does that work? Because we have our QA engineers do it manually and uh, I think it's mainly because our lead QA doesn't know how to automate, but um, how, how exactly does that work? I'm curious. 
Uh, there's a lot of different ways, and it really depends on your setup. Uh, so if you were doing an Angular application, then... Which we do. Right. So the, the Angular team uh, has an, a tool that they call Protractor, and it actually lets you programmatically use the UI of Angular. And then so you can, you can kind of program your, your UI tests that way. Um, but there are also third-party utilities that will uh, kind of treat the whole thing like a, like a macro. So you hit a record button, and then you just have somebody click and do the manual test, hmm. and it will record the whole process. And then when you're done, you click the stop button, and then you go in and you fill out the... Uh, it'll capture every action that you took, and then you go back and you tell it which actions you care about. So like maybe, maybe the username uh, you care about, and you want to... Uh, use a, uh, a set of usernames. So run the test 10 times with 10 different users. Um, those applications can cost money, though. So you don't see those too often. And setting up something like Protractor actually takes quite a bit of effort. So that's probably why you guys are doing it manually. Yeah, but we're, we, our development speed is suffering because our testers can't keep up with the developers. So the end of a three-week sprint, that last week or half week, developers are just sitting around doing nothing. Usually we're like, the, the team I'm on, the developers, both of us are, are pretty, um, well, we're doing things like, oh, hey, we don't have this. So let's see if I can integrate this into the application while, you know, over in dev while nobody is like trying to build anything. But yeah, that's, that's awesome. I want to look into those, both of those now. Yeah, so, I, would, I would say definitely look at look at Protractor if you're interested in doing the automated UI testing. So, moving on, what is the point of test-driven des- uh, development? So, a lot of people would say that it's it's about testing, but really, the main focus of TDD is about design. So, when you're practicing test-driven development, there are three uh, stages, three steps. You want to have a red cycle where you can see a you can write a test and you can see it fail. Then you can have a green phase where you make the test pass, and then you go back and refactor afterwards, and that includes your your production code as well as your test code. Uh, so what that is 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 just short iteration cycles, uh, reinforcing the fact that you are indeed doing the things that you think you're doing, that your application is doing the things that you're doing, and it leads to a very simple, clean, elegant design, uh, oftentimes because. You've gotten to the point where you, where your method, where your function, where your class is doing the thing it needs to do without a, all the extra stuff you might have thought you would have had to do in the beginning. So if you've ever sat down and done a whiteboard session and, and diagrammed out a number of classes that you think you might need to solve a particular problem and then gone to implement that, how often do you end up with the diagram that you whiteboarded in your code? Very rarely. Uh Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I've ever. Well, the way that I've always uh, put that to people is no battle plan survives first contact. Right. So it's still a good exercise to go through that mm-hmm. because it, it gets you thinking about the the edge cases and, oh, we need to be sure that we account for X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, so as you're going through the, that bullet point, maybe you're, you're going through the whiteboard exercise with coworkers, with people of different disciplines like QA and BA and, and, project managers and whatever the case may be, um, they can help you with those definitions and finding out, oh, make, make sure that it that it only accepts characters here. Make sure it only accepts numbers here. Make sure 
that if this is input with this value, that it throws an exception or, or it logs to a database or whatever. So you can put in those cases um, ahead of time. You can write them down on, on, a, on a notepad beside you, um, you know, whatever the case may be, just what, as long as you're capturing that information and then going about the process of developing the application guided by your tests. Yeah, I feel like the big thing that it's um, helped me on when I've you know, been in a situation to do it, which is not all the time because I'm still stuck on web forms a lot of times. Um, but the big thing it gets for me is it just avoids regressions because I've got that suite of tests that just go, hey, look, I can run these and make sure I didn't backslide. I don't build you know two weeks worth of work and find out I broke the rest of the system. That that is nice. Um, uh, my biggest thing with the the TDD is getting used to the time that it takes because it takes a little bit more upfront time of you know build the test and then build the code. So, uh, given all this, uh, what what other benefits do you see that are offered by unit testing? Like as far as like at the organizational level, or you know beyond just the code. Uh, well, uh, it can reduce uh, overall bugs and it can make bug resolution faster. So uh, the organization benefits from from that, hopefully, uh, less less downtime because uh, somebody got something wrong. I suppose if you're if you're doing test driven development, then it might lead you to ask the business certain questions that you may have either not asked uh, as early or not asked at all if you were not doing it, uh, which might lead to uh, better requirements in the end. Yeah, I think, John, do you have anything else? Yeah, and Will, like you mentioned, it, it helps with regression. Uh, you know, helps with catching those regre- regression bugs from being introduced. You know, if, if you have a test defining that the method or function under test returns a string in this value in, in, in this manner uh, or in this format, and, and you then you get a new requirement or, or somebody comes in behind you and changes the method signature or, or whatever the case may be, and now you have a failing test, you can easily validate that just by running the test suite. You can talk to the business owners and say, is this still a valid test case? Is this a new requirement or is this just something that has changed or, or something that we've broken along the way? Yeah, and that's um, something else I've noticed, too, that that does for you. Um, you know, because like when you when you have a regression, like the quicker you pick it up, the cheaper it is to fix. Like once you get a fossilized regression, you know, we call that a feature. Um, <laughs> and uh you know, like, it, it, but when they sit around a while, right, like they, they get more stuff piled on them. But I, one thing I've noticed with uh, unit tests and regression is that when you have one and it pops up like that, now you go, okay, I know the other parts of the system that I'm potentially damaging by touching something because I can kind of see that in the, in the failing unit tests. And like, I've worked on a lot of older systems that don't really have any docs. And if they have unit tests, like that's, that's sort of a backdoor documentation almost for how the pieces fit together. Yeah. Comprehensive unit test suite beats outdated documents any day. Yeah. And you know, of course that, that brings up a little personal thing that I've always said that seems like it ticks people off, but you know, I always refer to a comment that is sat in the source code for long enough as a lie because it usually becomes one eventually because it doesn't, you know, it's, yeah, they absolutely. aren't, uh, they aren't managed the same way as the rest of the code. So like, and the tests kind of force that on you. Yeah, something that's interesting I, I've had to deal with recently as I've been going into um, an app that was built by a developer that's not longer saying no longer with us doesn't make sense because he's alive. He just doesn't work there anymore. Uh, that no longer works there. 
Anyways, uh, we've had to change some some things like uh, Boolean that uh, now the business team wants to be able to have not applicable in there. So we're changing it to a string and have to change it all the way down through the database and all that fun, fun stuff. But something I have noticed is that one thing I like about Visual Studio.net is that it won't let me build until I go and fix the unit tests because, you know, it won't let me try to, you know, even though I'm not running the test, it'll still won't let me build until I go in and fix that. Yeah. That really keeps people from shipping stuff. That's busted. I mean, that's, yeah. that's huge. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's what, what I was getting at was it's just, it's a, it's a really nice thing to have because you can, like you said, you, you can make sure that the changes you're making aren't going to break other things. Clayton, you've got experience with a, a tri-state checkbox, right? <laughs> yeah, I wrote a, uh, a blog post on how to do one in Knockout. Uh, oh, dude, I'm using Knockout, and I just did a, um, you know, I did not a tri-state one, but I did a, uh, I just did a checkbox component like two weeks ago because um, I wanted it to color code based on whether this is an addition or it's setting it back to normal or if it's a removal so that they could easily tell. And I did a whole component and everything. It was over the top. It was so much fun. <laughs> Well, when they want to make it tri-state, I've got a blog post for you. All right. I'll find that for sure because they'll ask. It's go- it's coming, you know. I think somewhere in the blog post it says, don't do this. That's <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just... It, it definitely says I'll, that I'll in the comments. I'll just skim that part and, and do it anyway. <laughs> that's, that's called desperation. Like, that's how the, uh, the control and the C get hit on Stack Overflow. So... Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, hey, speaking of that, uh, what are some of the things that people get wrong about unit testing and test-driven development? I, I think one of, the, one of the biggest ones, and you won't realize you've been doing it wrong until it bites you, is tying your tests too closely to your implementation. So, I believe that your tests, um, I, I kind of fall in line with, um, with the, the whole uh, BDD concept. So your, your tests should represent the business rules. They should not necessarily represent how you've decided to implement those business rules. That way, when you decide to go and change stuff later on, like the implementation, you want to refactor or move this, move this thing over into a class and some other, another uh, module or, or uh, put this in a different DLL. You won't break your tests because the, the overall, the overarching code is still doing the exact same thing that it was doing. It's just you've decided to restructure how it's doing it. Uh, if you've if you've tied your test too closely to the implementation, those kinds of changes will cause you to break hundreds of tests, and then you have to go and fix hundreds of tests. Uh, well, um, we actually uh, <laughs> we had a question here about you know Bob Martin stated that the structure of your unit test should not necessarily reflect the structure of your project. So since we've already hit this point, I figure we'll go ahead and just go with the rest of that question. Um, if that's true, then how would you structure your tests? Like how would you do the? You said you did the the BDD or behavior driven development thing. Uh, can you, can we unpack that a little bit more? Sure. So let's, let's say that it's, it's a dream world and you've gotten the, the requirements that you actually would like to get. So for me, that is a user story. So as a, whatever the role is, I want some kind of feature so that, and whatever my reason for wanting that is followed by some acceptance criteria. This is how the, um, the QA and the business will will know that I have programmed it successfully. Uh, and I prefer to have those in what's called Gherkin format. I'm familiar with so, that. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so given some pre-context, when I take some kind of action, then I can expect some result. 
if I get my requirements in that structure and it's devoid of, of UI, it's not, it's not given um, I'm on the homepage, when I click the uh, info button, then I see info. As long as it's not like that, if it's devoid of, of UI and it actually contains the business rules, then I can almost take that Gherkin uh, acceptance criteria and turn it directly into unit tests. And then I have, I'm covering the use case. I'm not covering the, the code that's actually accomplishing the use case. And that to me is how the test should be written. The test, the business person, they may not understand the code, but they should be able to go and look at the names of the tests and understand that those tests are fulfilling the business need. So do you, do you name your, your methods in such a way that they can be parsed by a tool when they, when the, you know, when the process runs so that you kick the results out in a business owner type person can see it? If I was given the, the right format for the requirements, then, then I would strive to. Typically, I'm not given those kinds of requirements. And so my test names fit uh, my understanding of what the business is asking for. Uh, in which case, if you were to output the, the names, it may not quite deliver what the business would need for that. But um, I would love to get to that point. I've just got to train up a, a, a BA and a, and a PM at some point. Yeah. And Steve Smith has an excellent uh, blog post on, on this subject as well about structuring unit tests. Uh, entitled Unit Test Naming Convention. And I, I stumbled upon this a, a couple of months ago uh, as we were writing the book. Um, I was e- experimenting with naming conventions and how to how to structure some of the code and, and how to more closely match what, what Clayton's describing here is that we're, we're testing behavior, not necessarily testing methods and functions. So I, I came up with, with a structure that I've liked. Um, Clayton has a structure that, that he's comfortable with that, that I enjoy a great deal. Um, and kind of through, through this process, uh, just kind of happenstance on Twitter, I saw that, that Steve Smith kind of uh, retweeted this older blog post. I think it's from 2011 or, or something, uh, something like that. So, um, you know, it, it still holds true today. So, you know, it, any kind of thought you give to this and, and plan accordingly will, will just help you in the long run. Oh, I can. Yeah, I was looking at his. His looks like it's you know the class name is kind of like the should chunk of the BDD, and then the actual methods are the 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 actual um, assertion or the name, not the the assertion, but like the rest of that sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, essentially, he's uh, aligning his structure so that when his test suite runs, uh, it it reads like the uh, like a like a user story or like an acceptance criteria might might read. Mm. I had some issue when I very first started uh, my my first job, which was at, at the state. They had me as a junior developer going in and you know writing unit tests. It's a great introduction to the code base. What threw me off was the different developers in there had different naming conventions for their tests, and so at first it was so confusing. Because some of them looked like they were saying the same thing. I'm like, why do you have two tests that do the same thing? Until I got really in there and found out what it was doing. But, you know, that that naming conventions can be very important. And sticking with it across developers. Yeah, with, within a team, it's usually best to, to uh, pick something. And it may, it may be, uh, you know, it might be what you feel is suboptimal. But if the whole team can agree upon it, then that's that's really what you should go for that way. Uh, anyone on the team can open up any of the tests and understand what's going on. Yeah, that would have been very convenient for me uh, starting out. Of course, 
I, I went back and renamed quite a few of them just to to do that. I put them all in the the same format because uh, I'm a little OCD like that. I do that with capital D's. <laughs> Whenever I see ID, I change all the D's to lower. Oh yeah. Oh man. <laughs> I used to come in behind him and change them back. <laughs> you know what you do is you change every other one, and then you and then you skip two just one time. <laughs> <laughs> like if you really want to sink that in. So moving on with the, the questions, um, getting back into them, how do you use unit testing, uh, test-driven design in an automated build process? So I've recently uh, started on a new Greenfield project where it's myself and one other developer. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we've got six or eight different projects of of varying complexity going right now. One uh, React website, a couple of .NET Core 2.0 uh, web API backends, and, and a couple of other processes. And I've also kind of been delegated the role of DevOps in, in setting up our CI/CD pipeline. Um, so uh, right now we're using uh, TFS on-prem, uh, using uh, Git repository within mm-hmm. TFS, set up the CI pipeline uh, so that we're essentially gating all our merges. So we're, when we do a pull request, um, the build must succeed. And part of the CI build is running of the unit test suite, whether it's in uh, React and Jest or whether it's in, in .NET. I think we're using XUnit for most of the projects. Uh, so if, if any of those tests fail, then, then the build fails and the PR, the pull request cannot be uh, completed and merged. And I've also set up on the uh, React website that if we fall below a certain threshold of, of coverage and things like that, then, then it also fails to build. So that's, you, you're doing that with TFS and Git, because that's what we're using at work. And we've been talking about wanting to do this. So this is, this is one of the questions that was really important to me. So that's, that's awesome, because you're talking about the stuff that we're doing. Yeah, there's nothing worse than than bringing down a, a fresh clone of a repository, run the unit tests, and everything mm-hmm. breaks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I tell you a pattern I've seen um, that would uh, an automated build process would actually catch is people abusing unit test frameworks for stuff that's not a test. In other words, for like you know resetting a chunk of data to a certain you know state, and they'll just they'll set up tests to do that, and then they just right click them and run them when they're actually manually testing stuff. Um, so like, it, it seems like the automated testing, you know, if you've got it tied in and you've got good code coverage metrics, uh, that gets rid of a lot of really weird, janky shenanigans that trip people up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to just make sure that you're setting the, the code metrics um, with, with good, in good faith. You know, you don't want to say we must hit 80% code coverage, no ifs, ands, or buts. Because uh, I've worked on projects in the past where they were not written with testing in mind. They were not testable in their current state. Um, and it was mandated that we had to get coverage. I, I, I told my boss, I can write tests to cover this. They will be wholly meaningless. And he said, well, we got to follow the, the policies and procedures that, that have been dictated. So go ahead and do what you have yeah. to do. Mm-hmm. And I've run into that before as well, especially like in the web forms world, because I still deal with a lot of older code bases. I mean, heck, sometimes I, I program in Delphi. No kidding. Um, and and being able to test in that can be 
very interesting, especially with old web forms. I, that seems like it's even worse uh, than Delphi is in, in terms of just stuff being really tightly coupled in the framework, and you can't you can't really get in there and test things like you would really want to. So how do you manage complexity on your unit tests? I mean, we talked about naming, but there's lots of other stuff too, like, uh, you know, namespacing, uh, your code reuse, you know, all that kind of stuff. How do you, how do you structure your, your overall testing projects? Uh, so from a overall structure, uh, and I do this with, with, even with my, my uh, code that's not test code, um, Uncle Bob, uh, Robert Martin, suggests uh, only having methods that are five lines or less uh, in size. And uh, I kind of took that to heart and, and applied it to everything. So when I'm writing my code, if a method exceeds the five lines, then I'll break it out into more than one method. If a class exceeds five methods, then I'll break it out into more than one class. If a folder exceeds five classes, then I will strongly think about breaking it out into multiple folders. If a project exceeds more than five folders, then I will strongly think about breaking that out into multiple projects. And I do the exact same thing with the tests, um, except for it's slightly different. So I worry less about the um, the line length of, of a test because it's usually pretty small. I mean, we're talking like three or four lines max anyway, because I have the, the arrangement where I set up uh, the pre-context of the test. And then I have the action where I usually just one line. I don't, I don't ever have more than one line for my action. And then the assertions are one to two lines. So my tests are pretty small to start with. But within a test class, I won't have more than five um, overall things that I'm testing or five units or five, five uh, overall logical assertions. Uh, and that tends to reduce the overall size of any one thing within my test projects. And then um, I am constantly, uh, well, both John and I are constantly looking for any kind of pain that we're experiencing within any of our programming. So the second that we can find that pain, and we are actively looking for it, then we try to come up with a plan to reduce that pain, uh, either by refactoring something or creating a helper utility um, I have a dependency injection utility that I wrote. It's about 50 lines long, and I use that specifically for testing. Uh, that way, if I have classes with dependencies, I don't necessarily have to configure those dependencies at the beginning of each test class. I can just inject them from an already pre-configured point within the, uh, the test project. And we have several things kind of like that. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Yeah, some of the stuff that because uh, I have to. I, I just recently introduced Auto Mapper, uh, whereas before we were manually coding the like converting from the view model to the data model. That was a pain. Uh, saved a lot of time with it, but with my unit tests, I have to initiate the the mapper and a couple of other things. But that just like the the whole idea of injecting that into the unit tests. Uh, you know, I don't want to say mind blown, but uh, that's an idea I had not thought of doing. So that's cool. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking about, uh, you know, the way you structure it. But um, one thing that I've found that's been really painful is when you get one of those uh, large untested code bases and you start trying to shimmy tests in there. Like I'm coming up on that very soon on the on the project that I'm on. Like I have to have dependency injection actually up and working. I think probably before I can do much with it. Um, but how would you, 
you know, like structuring those tests in an ongoing, you know, like basically eating the code base with tests. Um, that's something I don't completely understand how to cleanly structure. And I, I was wondering if you had any tips on that. Uh, that's that's where it gets a bit sticky. Um, <laughs> I was afraid of that. We have we have a we have a whole chapter in the book devoted to writing tests around the worst code that I could possibly think of to write. I mean, I've got go tos in the C sharp. Yep. <laughs> which. They should never have even put in the language. Um, I didn't even know that was in the language. Yeah, we'll I mean, I'm new, it. but it's, it's it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's not it's in the not language. Forget I ever said yeah. anything. Uh, <laughs> or you know, my, or when you get uh, you know volatile, or you start reacting, or you know, interacting with like unmanaged code heavily. Yeah, I I really would have loved to use the unsafe keyword, but uh, I just I just couldn't think of a way to use it in the in the sample application that I was uh, demonstrating with. Um, or pointers, However, like you could have manipulated <laughs> images. <laughs> I mean, I was I already wrote my own um, two lower um, abstraction that was split across three different labeled lines and used go tos to jump to the different pieces. So, oh. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I don't even uh, I don't I don't have any words for that. <laughs> yeah, but but then but then I wrote yeah I wrote tests for it right as as part of the book, and this is a console application. And it was it was never it was never written with the the intent for it to be anything other than a everything in in main in the void main of the program CS file application. So the first thing that you that you have to do is write um, a characterization test. Uh, some people call it a gold standard test. And what it does is it takes a section of the application. In this case, it was the whole application because it's a small application. But with yours, you'd you'd probably take a section like one class and you don't touch any of the code. You just run the class with all its dependencies, console, write line, and everything. Um, now, you, you can't run that right off the bat all the time because maybe you're depending on some third-party utility and you, you can't actually run that utility or you're depending on ADO.NET code that you can't actually run. You are forced to write some code without tests so that you can refactor just enough of it to get tests around it. That whole process is not fun. But after you get the, to the point where you've got one gold standard characterization test around the code that you're, that you're looking to isolate, everything else starts to fall into place pretty quick. But it's, it's still, it, it is a bit of a, of a, a trek through the mud to, to get to the point where you're, where you're testing that. Yeah, that sounds like what uh, basically what I've experienced in the past. I, I thought, you know, maybe maybe this is so hard because I'm just terrible at it. That's, that's what I was really hoping for there. But I mean, it, there's not a I, I mean, I, I agree with you. There's there's not a real good way to get in there. You know, you just have to sort of it's like winning a slugging match. You just kind of get hit. Yeah. Un unfortunately, over. writing tests for code that was never meant to be tested is, is hard. Yeah, because inevitably the, the code that was written without testability in mind also breaks every one of the solid principles. It's tightly coupled. Um, you're not going to get any clean way into that application or, or that method or that class. Um, so what I've found is, is you're usually going to be approaching a, a legacy application like this to either add functionality or uh, change functionality. So you can look at, well, I know that I need to write this new method or I need to add this functionality to this part of the application, I think, um, so that maybe you can start with testing of that method or test driving that method uh, or that functionality and then go from there. And then you can see that, yeah, I can modify this class enough uh, to inject the dependencies that I need 
And then I can look at, oh yeah, this makes sense. Now I can start to unravel a little bit more of this class. Um, maybe with unraveling that, I can unravel a couple of other uh, side classes and, and kind of pull it out from gotcha. there. Yeah. So speaking of code that wasn't designed to be tested, should you and how would you unit test things like a database or the interaction with one? Yeah. Specifically for testing the database, should you want to venture into it, there is a SQL unit project. So you can actually write SQL based unit tests. Um, would I? Not really. <laughs> Yeah, our, the app we uh, work on at work, a lot of logic is in the database. Um, we've got some really heavy stored procs, and that's because we've had um, you know multiple teams. Like we've got a Delphi team and a .NET team, and that's a safe way to do code sharing in some cases, as bad as that is. Um, you know, plus we've got large uh, data sets. Like we've got some clients that have got you know a quarter billion rows in some of their tables, and so that. That actually would be pretty useful to me, would, would be database testing. So I'll definitely have to check that one out. Yeah, in, in a system where you are heavily dependent on, on stored procs, I, I might suggest uh, doing the database testing. Um, either either SQL unit, which uh, I'll admit I have not set up. I've, I've looked into it briefly several years ago. Um, or just write a simple um, C-sharp application uh, with a testing layer to... Um, I would suggest setting up um, either a database project that you could clone a local version of the database with or um, getting a, uh, a copy of the database specifically for testing. This way you're not you're not messing with uh, production data or even even data that some QA analyst is depending on in some test environment. Um, and then and then that way your tests can essentially wipe out all the data, set up whatever context you want to test around, run the stored proc, validate the results and uh, move on to the next testing scenario. Yeah, I, uh, I I have a few dev databases that are full of unit test information from where I was just like, I need to make sure the mappings are right or, you know, make sure the, the DBA didn't fall asleep at the wheel and forget to give grants somewhere because that happens a lot. Yeah, the other thing I've done is actually have uh, C-sharp code for working out the the unit testing of stored procedures. You know, you start a you start a transaction and you do your call and you get your data back and then you roll the transaction back. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, that's definitely an option. Yeah, that that has actually worked surprisingly well. It's tedious, but I mean, once it's there, if you don't change the proc, it's there. Yeah. So we've talked about some bad practices and some things to avoid when creating unit tests and when driving your development with testing. What are some good practices you can use to make sure your tests are maintainable over the long run? I would say don't forget to refactor your, your tests. Your, your test suite is just as important, if not more important, than your production code. Because if you, if you lost your production code, if you have a comprehensive suite of unit tests, uh, you, you should feel fairly confident that you could reproduce uh, something or get something in, in a workable fashion. So keeping those in check and making sure that they're they're well kept is is a good first step. Yeah, I would agree with that because it's almost like it's a uh, checksum for your code in you know some ways. I've I've had a situation where somebody checked a test in uh, for code that they didn't check in and they went on vacation and I was able to just rebuild their you know th- their code or what it should have done based on the tests and go on with life. Um, that's happened hmm. once or twice to me. So. 
another good point is to remember that that you are testing small units or small pieces that should not have inter interconnected um, dependencies. Uh, so that you know you you should feel comfortable to uh, substitute a mock or a spy uh, or or some kind of fake implementation. Uh, so, but the the caveat there is be careful not to test yeah. your mock or fake or spy. Uh, so I've seen some some people kind of go overboard and they end up testing their their fakes and uh, wasting, yeah I've seen that or testing the uh, like in .NET at least I've seen people test the framework. Mm-hmm. I've seen that too. You know, like yeah, I, I draw the line at, at, uh, yeah, and at the end of my code. Yeah. Wherever my code ends, that's that's where I stop testing. I mean, just testing that, like a you know, if I set a property and then I get the value back out of it, um, and it's not on an object I own. You know, like I've seen that kind of stuff well, floating. Yeah, that, that's yeah, and that's a that's a good point too. We want to make sure that we abstract away all third party code, and that includes the .NET framework. So if you if you see things just as as simple as datetime .now. Uh, we, you know, it's pretty good practice to go ahead and abstract that away into something like a time manager that you can inject and then substitute your own values if you need to test for specific mm-hmm. dates and times. Right. And actually, one of the things that I, you know, I didn't realize early on in my career, you know, it was uh, sorting dates. You know, like if you have if you have them represented as a string, that's not sorting the same way as the date in date time format. I actually turned a sale back on. You know, because of a, a a date restriction like that, and there was no way. You know, had I been writing tests, of course, this was like in unit wasn't even out then. Like this would have been two thousand three. If I'd had an object that returned a fake value for date time dot now, I could have actually seen how this thing would have reacted. You know, two days later when it went live. Mm-hmm. That that makes sense. Um, and I've I've had to deal with uh, some interesting stuff that people who didn't really understand unit testing but were trying to had to do there. Speaking of people not understanding unit tests, how do you sell unit testing to a team that may be skeptical of its benefits? It can be it can be difficult. Um, probably the best way to win somebody over to your perspective is to not try to win them over to your perspective. So a lot of times when I've gone into teams where they weren't doing testing, uh, whether they were interested in it or not, I will simply start doing the testing myself. And I will look for excuses to pair program with the other uh, individuals on the team so that they can see how I'm programming. And, uh, and hopefully I can uh, sit with them and, and maybe make some suggestions for how they are programming. And eventually they'll see me writing the tests and they'll see uh, the benefits because I'll, I'll make a mistake or they'll make a mistake and then the test will break. And, uh, and then we'll go, oh, well, good thing we caught that now. And we can move on in 10 seconds instead of spending half an hour debugging something. Mm-hmm. Um, after they start to see that benefit, uh, then they'll usually ask for more information about testing. And um, after they get past the point where their uh, their head hurts a little bit uh, and they start doing testing on their own, they'll find a lot of instances where the test actually saves them from from spending a lot of time trying to fix something that that they didn't really need to spend a whole lot of time fixing because it was a simple thing that they just overlooked. Um, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the winning point is when, when they see that they just saved themselves a couple hours of, of work because they had a test tell them that they had just broke something. Oh, I like that approach. That's what I did uh, to get logging into our apps where I'm working now, because when I started, nobody was doing it. And I was like, well, I'm just going to put it into my stuff 
And as my lead developer and then upper management started seeing how much faster I could fix bugs and solve problems, they're like, why Why is it so much faster when you do it? I was like, well, it's because I just look at the log and I can tell exactly <laughs> what's wrong. And so, yeah. like, it's the, it's the same thing with uh, with unit testing. And I, I, I love that approach, which is not the convince them to do it, but it is lead by example and show them, hey, here's the benefit because you can see me getting it. Yeah, it's, it's that, uh, oh, what is it, uh, be so good they can't ignore you uh, kind of concept. Yeah, be the 800-pound gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clay- Clayton actually introduced uh, test-driven development to to our team a number of years ago. Uh, I, I had started with this uh, this renewed startup uh, under the guise that they were doing TDD uh, during the interview process. I, I said, you know, I I don't have any experience with this, but I'm happy to learn. Uh, when I came on board, uh, it was only then that I found out they weren't actually doing it yet, but they they wanted to. Clayton came on board a, a couple of months after that, and and he actually had some experience and, and uh, started kind of refactoring the code into a little bit more testable state and then slowly started introducing tests and then slowly started yelling <laughs> at people when we broke his tests. Um, and then uh, just as a team, it was decided that, that that was the path we were going. We started doing lunch and learns uh, three and four days a week. We would watch videos uh, during lunch. We would uh, practice together. Uh, we, we kind of banged our heads on the table uh, together. It was a, this was a, a team of about, I don't know, six or eight or 10 developers. Uh, and I would say as a team, it took us about three months for, for the entire team to get up to speed and uh, be as productive as, as we were before and, and not as aggravated and wanting to kill mm. one another. <laughs> and I, I've, I've quoted that three month figure a couple of times to different, different people. And, and people are either shocked one way or the other that either that's too long or that's not long enough. Um, and it's, it's not long enough for the people that have, have struggled and, and, and not followed through and given up to, to go and, and continue on their, the way they've, they're comfortable developing. And, um, but you know, for, for a team that size, I think that was about right. Um, but what I've discovered since then is that I'm much, much faster as a, as a developer as a result of learning TDD. Uh, I think, Beach, you mentioned earlier that, you know, it, it is, it's a commitment and it does slow you down in the beginning until you're comfortable, until, until you have the mindset of a test-driven developer. Um, then you can start thinking about the, the paths through a system uh, how I might need to structure the code, what the dependencies are, and how I can avoid those dependencies. I've also worked uh, other places where I've I've been the one to introduce TDD. Uh, one such place was a, a consultancy that they had tried to introduce TDD, or at least introduced, or or at least they tried to introduce unit testing, um, but they did so in a way that they added it as a line item to their clients. Ooh. <laughs> That was usually the, that was the first thing that that went. The clients were not going to pay for more code, um, so of course they ended up paying for more bugs, three or four times the three or four times the amount of development time because of more bugs, because of more manual yeah, testing. I can I can and see that. So um, you know, given the the whole thing about a team, um, how would you you know how do you sell it to management? Is there anything that you you do, especially when you're trying to get uh, management on your side for pushing TDD? That well, it it 
Yeah, it's it's a personal practice. It's a development practice. You just declare that this is how I write code. Um, you know, Clayton has has been one to say that. Well, I'll, Clayton, I'll let you speak for yourself. <laughs> well, so so um, Uncle Bob has has said uh, in some of his videos and and lectures and stuff that it's a point of professionalism. They they hired you because you supposedly know how to do your job. So who are they to tell you how to do your job? Um, I've, I've never asked for permission. I've never even bothered to tell my managers that I was doing TDD. I just do TDD. And if they ever ask and they tell me to stop, I'll just tell them, no, this is, this is how I write code. And usually by the time that they find out I'm doing TDD, I've already proven that I'm faster and that my code just does not have bugs, uh, which just for clarity, TDD does not guarantee, but, but I have a significantly lower bug rate. And I, and I, I contribute it 100% to TDD. Um, yeah, the, the best water cooler discussion I was ever involved in, uh, I was pretty new to a, a contract with uh, American Express Serve in the St. Petersburg, Florida area, um, where the, the management team was brought in from old uh, Netflix uh, VPs and, and senior devs and, and architects. And uh, one of our, our development directors and, and my manager were, were speaking uh, near the water cooler. And, and I just happened to kind of come in and, and eavesdrop and join in on the conversation a bit. And, and the, the director, the development director said, you know, TDD one, that's just how we do code. That's how we develop software. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, guys, unit testing is a valuable skill to have no matter where your code runs or what it does. Uh, it reduces the error rate of your software and can help force a better structure into your code. In addition, this practice can make it easier to make large changes to your software with less risks, as well as making it easier for new developers to understand the structure of your software. We want to thank John and Clayton for joining us and answering our questions and having a great conversation. That was that was really awesome. I got more than I expected out of it. Uh, check out their book. We'll have a link to where you can find it in the show notes. John, Clayton, where can our listeners find you to learn more? Well, you can find us at our blog and podcast site at sixfiguredev.com. Of course, we've got a Twitter handle at sixfiguredev. And then my personal Twitter handle is Matsu Bonsai. And my personal Twitter handle is at Clayton Hunt underscore 104. Thanks, guys, again for coming on. Like I said, I, I've learned a lot from this, and uh, I think Will has too. We, we got a lot out of it. Uh, that pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, it's something that I brought up uh, probably like our third or fourth episode. Um, so it's time to bring it up again, I guess. Um, and that's one of the words that we like to use in software development. Uh, we like to talk about bugs. And I think a lot of times we really do ourselves a disservice by calling them bugs rather than defects. Because if you, you know, like the term defect is semantically loaded where you actually understand what's going on. Whereas a bug, it's like, oh, you know, an ant crawled in here. Whereas a defect is like, hey, this this airbag just blew up in somebody's face while they're going down the interstate. Um, and our use of the of the word bug trivializes the kind of problems that we can create by ignoring big problems in our software. And I just want to throw out the idea that maybe we should all start using the term defect just because of 
this minimization. In other words, this goes along with the unit testing. It's like we want to prevent it, and we want to prevent it because it's a real problem, not a random insect flying into a system. And that's about all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.